So if you add the letters I-S-T to the end of a word, you can label someone. You can give them an ideology. You can make them your enemy. It could be someone's name, like a Marxist. It could be someone's ideology, like a fascist. It could be someone's disposition towards hatred, like a racist. Let me ask you something. Are you a deathist? Let me spell it for you. D-E-A-T-H-I-S-T. A deathist. What is a deathist, you might ask? That's a fantastic question. I'm so glad you asked. A deathist is someone who accepts the fact of death, who thinks the ongoing massacre of us all by aging is not a scandal. A deathist even insists that death might be valuable. That the only thing that gives meaning to life is the fact that life ends. You see, death, for the longest time, has had no alternative. But, but, now there is. Many tech entrepreneurs and scientists now take a different view. Death they say, is simply an engineering challenge. Biotechnology should, in principle, be able to reverse the wear and tear on cellular machinery in our bodies and keep us in our prime indefinitely, barring some sort of violent accident. Now consider how many lives this would save. If you think such research should not be pursued, then you are a throwback, a deathist. I think that the reason that Disney greenlit a movie called Frozen was that so when you Google Disney Frozen, you no longer get a report of Walt Disney cryogenically freezing himself until they can figure out the whole death thing. Now there's a cute movie with songs that you can't get out of your head. Blaise Pascal once noted this. As men are not able to fight against death, misery, ignorance, they have taken it into their heads in order to be happy, not to think of them at all. Whether the trend is to be one that thinks death, death can be conquered, it's all just a rehash of the same old thing. Nothing new under the sun is there. Except for one person. Koheleth, it seems, death was all he could think about. 
It's where he saw everything going. It was the conclusion of the lab report. It was the finality of all things. Death itself was where everything was heading. And it's all he could think about. We are coming to the conclusion of our Ecclesiastes series next week. This week we'll hear one final um, set of thoughts from Koheleth. I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes 11. We'll start in verse 7 and then read through chapter 12, verse 7. Stand if you would. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dim. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. And the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's pray. Father. We need your spirit to come and blow powerfully among us. We need to think of things that we wouldn't normally want to think about. We need to wrestle with things that we don't like to wrestle with. We need, Lord God, we need to see you this day. For there is no hope for us. There is no power in us. There is no strength that we can summon that can bring us to any other place that could ever satisfy us. It's only you. It's always been you. So meet us, we pray. Speak to us now. For your people are listening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I want to think about three things as we look at this text. The first two points I'm aiming to make quick. 
because the most time I think we need to spend is on that third point of what's the, what's the point of our days. Um, there's an exhortation that comes beginning in chapter 11, verse 7, where we need to think about the length of our days. Um, now, I know that uh, aging is not something that we like to talk about. Uh, we like to, at some point, start uh, having creative ways to uh, speak about how old we are. Some of us start aging backwards in uh, a, a Benjamin Button-style fashion. Um, some of us simply start spending uh, the next many years celebrating the anniversary of our favorite birthday, um, whatever that is. And uh, if you're like my grandmother, um, she would tell you um, that uh, she was the inverse uh, of her age. Um, so uh, last year she was 59. That was great. Um, this year it caught up to her a little bit. She was 69, um, but still um, uh, sparkling. We need to talk for a second about how to take stock of the length of our days. Um, One of the things that has been, uh, at least jumped out to me as I have um, studied this text along with you over the time uh, in Ecclesiastes, has been this notion that we need to be, there is a call to be fully present where you are, wherever God places you. You don't, you don't do any yourself any good spending time um, looking backwards at what could have been or ahead to what might be. You need to be fully present where you are. Um, and he says it right here in verse 7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. He's taking time to observe his surroundings. In verse 8, so if a person lives many years, Not when a person lives many years, if a person lives many years. Let him rejoice in them all. Let him rejoice in them all. First of all, there's an acknowledgement here that it is possible that you might not live many years. In fact, your life might get dramatically, tragically cut short. I'm going to talk about the more about the um, the, the the aging gracefully part in a, in a minute, um, but I want to think for just a moment um, about the second part of verse eight. Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is is hevel. It's absurdity. It's vanity. It's it's vapor. He's saying here that the days of darkness will be many. You're likely going to have more tough days than good days, more tears than triumphs, more darkness than light. And he says this is, this is absurd. You really can read Ecclesiastes like a great big prayer of lament. Because Koheleth knows that ultimately the reason that all of this is happening is because God has set it into motion. So this is not a rallying cry, say, buck up everyone, we can get better. It's kind of a lament of saying, God is the one that's allowed all this. This is absurd. Why would he do this? In 
It's absurdity to him. So when you find yourself in the good days, rather than pining for days gone by or fretting about the days that are yet to come, rejoice in them. There is a mindfulness that is called for. And again, some of you I know are more predisposed to, um, uh, how shall we say, cheery dispositions, right? Some of us are more uh, melancholy or... uh, um, some would say pessimistic. Um, I like realistic. It it's, suits me better. Um, and of course, the optimists say that's what you pessimists all say. Um, there's a call to rejoice in the delight of the smile of your spouse or the laughter of your kids or the smell of freshly brewed coffee or the sight of a clean cut lawn or the feeling of freshly laundered bed linens or the laughter that comes from deep in the belly of a friend that melts all the cares of the day into nothingness. To be cognizant and mindful and present in those moments to enjoy them for what they are and give thanks for the gifts that they are. And even to say that there are days of darkness ahead is not to negate the fact that there are pleasant days now. It's not a negation, it's a qualification. It's just saying, look, yes, there are going to be bad days. Yes, there are going to be hard days. So when the days of goodness come, have your eyes open so that you can see them. In her masterful book, uh, Gilead, Marilyn Robinson says this, remembering my youth makes me aware that I never really had enough of it. It was over before I was done with it. (laughs) I had a friend of mine tell me in your 30s, your joints hurt. In your 40s, your muscles begin to hurt. In your 50s, everything hurts, and you don't know why. And some of you that are older than your 50s, I salute you because I don't know how I'm going to make it. (laughs) I get out of bed every morning, and it's a new puzzle of which thing is going to cause me to injure myself. And my kids are still young, so I have to get up quickly and go shush somebody so they don't wake somebody else up. Anyway, it's a whole thing. We live all around us uh, with offers of a fountain of youth. The amount of plastic surgery happening, uh, the amount of um, elective plastic surgery happening just in West Plano. Everyone's doing everything that they can to maintain an illusion of youth. Because just like Robinson said, I never really had enough of it. It was over before I was done with it. There can be a pining backwards of what did I, what did I miss out on? There's a second thing that we see in the text. It's not only to take stock of the length of your days, but it's also to take stock of the strength of our youth. Um, so there's not only a call to live with each day, um, live with a mindfulness of the gift of each day uh, for those who grow old, but for also for those who are presently young. Now, I know that you who are presently young are, are thinking that I will never need to hear these sage words of advice. 
Yes, you do. Listen. The teacher says that the young person is to rejoice in their youth because they are not yet experiencing all the troubles that grown adults face. There was a large amen block somewhere that happened over there. (laughs) Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Okay, so one of the things that is being said here is there is a There is a life, there is a future that is full of possibilities. There is a reason why every single commencement speech at high school and college commencement sounds exactly the same. Because they're always talking to 18 to 21-year-olds. Of course your life is before you. Of course it's ripe with possibility and the world is your oyster and whatever else. I forgot the rest. Maybe it's four score and seven years ago. I don't know. future is full of possibility. There is freedom to discover yourself, to change direction, to risk and fail and try again. There is much to be said about being young. And yet, Koheleth offers a cautionary note here too. The world is still not about you. It may be full of possibility, but it's not full of your possibilities as if you are the one who is ruling and running and reigning in your world. It's full of God's possibilities. And so he says, but no, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring judgment, bring you into judgment. You are to flourish and grow in freedom, but... It is a freedom within boundaries. So how does that actually make you free? How, does it, how, is, how is it freedom to say that, it is, that you have freedom and yet you are, you are full, there are full of bound, life is full of boundaries all around you? So I used this illustration back in the Psalm series, and I'll say it again. Imagine that you are on a, uh, I know that some of you like to climb rocks and do other things that put your life in peril, and, and kudos to you. I like chairs and books and windows. Um, it's I I risk paper cuts. That's about it. Um, So imagine that you are on some sort of grand rock face on just the slimmest of paths. You are free at that moment to step wherever you want. But one direction's a rock and the other direction, um, it's not the step, it's the sudden stop. But now imagine that you are, instead of trying to place your feet one in front of the other on a perilous rock cliff, now imagine that you're on a free and open and lush pasture. You can run anywhere you choose. There are still boundaries, but they're they're boundaries given with great grace. This is, this is life in God. This is life in Christ. If you, are, if you are still bound up in sin, if you are still trying to rule your world, there is only one, there is only one, st- you're not free at all. You have no freedom. If you are in Christ, 
You are free. Yes, you are free indeed because the law of God, the word of God, the, uh, the precepts of God are not there to crush you or to take life away from you, but in fact to open up those vistas of freedom for you. This is where you were designed to flourish. This is where you were designed to live. God is not trying to crush your dreams, but to actually give you life. what St. Augustine said. Love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do whatever you please. Our actions must always flow as a response to our love of God. Whatever we do, whatever we uh, engage in, they will be rightly ordered actions if they are, all, if they are um, actions given as a response to the love that we have been shown through God in Christ Jesus. When our actions cease to be responses to God's love and then become actions that are designed to be uh, whatever we feel like is right in the moment. We become like the people of judges of the, of the time of the judges, right? And in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. So to walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes is not do whatever you want. It's love God. And then do as you please. But don't get that order mixed up. I want to spend most of our time, um, or the time that's remaining, on this last part of uh, Ecclesiastes. It gets a little thick here, just so everyone's clear on that. So hopefully um, that uh, turkey coma has uh, worn off. You got some good exercise in. You ready to go? Everybody ready to go? Yes? Okay. Good, that's the, that's the most energetic I've seen you. That's fantastic. Here we go. <laughs> okay, what is the point of our days, okay? It is easy uh, to get stuck in, in one part and think that he's giving us the answer, and he's not. Um, look at what he says in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, I just want to stop there and say this. I'll define some of those terms for you in just a minute. But if you want to know where Ecclesiastes brings you and I into commonality with our neighbor, it is this. Most of our neighbors, most of our coworkers, most of our family, and if I can be so bold for just a minute, I would say even most of us are living with the point of our lives, the point of our days to be to remove vexation, to remove physical trouble, to just feel better. So what is, um, what is a vexation? A vexation is any problem that causes us worry and concern, that angers or grieves or irritates. It is the bitterness provoked by a hard and disappointing world. It is how you and I react when we come up to the fact that the world does not give us what we think we deserve. 
And I'm going to tell you, church, we are not exempt from pursuing this wrongly as the end of our days and the point of our lives. So how do you define vexation? In our younger days, it may, a vexation might have been that you weren't getting enough attention from perhaps your parents or your friends or that you're getting too much attention and you just want to be left alone. As you grow older, it might be that the world operates, uh, the way the world operates is a vexation to you. It might be the taxes that you pay, the people that you endure, the issues that you deal with. For each one of us in here, our vexations are different. What angers or irritates one of us might not be the same anger or irritant for another one of us. Life is full of physical ailments as well. So what do we do with this? Um, The first thing is I appreciate the fact that there is an honesty here. I feel like conversations with our neighbors would go a lot better if we didn't have this view that we have to sell Jesus to them. Do you know what I mean? When you feel like you have to sell Jesus, you feel like you have to minimize your problems and maximize all the good stuff in your life where it sounds like, um, I don't know, it sounds like a life that doesn't sound real. And people try Jesus and then their life still is hard. And they feel like they were duped by a bad sales pitch. And I feel like, friends, one of the things that could go a long way to being the salt and light of Jesus in the world is not have to sell Jesus, but actually just live in light of the gospel. That There are going to be more hard days than good days, that you are going to struggle. You are going to sin and you are going to repent. You're going to mess up and you're going to cling to grace. You are going to look for Christ to be your only hope even when you have nothing else. That's a different sermon. Whether it's physical ailment or vexation, life is full of it. I love this quote by Amy Mann um, when it comes to dealing with our vexations and ailments. She says this. She says, I think it's hard to be a person. (laughs) It keeps going, but I like that part. It's really hard to negotiate relationships. It's hard to negotiate loss. It's hard to have perspective on your own problems. It's hard to break out of the habits and dynamics of your childhood. And people aren't really naturally born with the skills to negotiate it. So I have a lot of compassion for people. Everyone is struggling in some way. Your life, my life, our neighbor's life is full of vexation and physical ailment. It is full of it. The difference is um, life's point is not just to see those things get put away, although we should try to, right? And so if you are struggling with some sort of uh, besetting sin of anger or depression or anxiety or whatever, you should actually seek out some help for those things, whether it's a trusted Christian friend or a doctor, And if your life is full of physical ailment um, and it's something that can be dealt with, then try and deal with it. But don't make that your end. Don't make that where your whole life is aiming for. 
Because the problem comes when we make this the aim of our lives, to preserve the appearance of youth at all costs, to preserve the feeling of euphoria at all costs, to medicate or minimize or mask pain at all costs. When these things become ends rather than good pursuits within the context of greater gains, this is where things can go off the rails. Now, in chapter 12, in chapter 12, we see a poem. A lot of people have spent a lot of time and spilled a lot of ink to try and interpret the poem because he mixes his metaphors, he mixes his allegories. It's, it starts one place and goes somewhere else. It can be really difficult to understand. So you're still with me? Yes? Okay, some of you dropped off back there on that last one about physical ailment. Come back. Here we go. Okay. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Okay? Before the sun now now we get into the into the poem in verse two. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Um I don't know how many times we have to say this, but let's say it again. The Bible was never written to be a science textbook. Stop trying to make it a science textbook. The Bible is God's gracious revelation of himself to his people and how he is coming to redeem and rescue them from the pit of sin and death and hell. I don't know why there are four lights given here, but that's not the point. Enjoy life, he says, before... The darkness comes. Now, verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Now, what he's talking about here first sounds like a house. But when you dig into a little bit more, for the grinders, for instance, to be the, uh, the, women, uh, the women servants of the house that would be grinding the grain harvest. Those would be the grinders, right? The metaphor doesn't make sense unless you realize he's allegorizing the the body, the physical body, right? In the days when the keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent, and the grinders likely are teeth become fewer. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. As you age, what happens to your eyesight? And the doors on the street are shut. So that one likely could be um, bodily orifice, whether, e- whether ears or other, other spots. And the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. Now, how does that work? If your hearing's going, how do you rise up at the sound of the bird? How many of you have had a good solid, those of you who are um, uh, now uh, a little bit older, how many of you have had a solid night's sleep? You wake up. You wake up a lot. (laughs) You wake up because nature calls. You wake up because you don't know why. You're just awake. Verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high 
and the terrors that are in the way. Look, as we age, we become more and more apprehensive of what's happening in our days. Now, the next, uh, the next three um, elements uh, need a little bit of unpacking. The almond tree blossoms. When the almond tree blossoms, it will blossom in what color? White. When your hair begins to gray. The grasshopper drags itself along. It's just harder to move. And desire fails. Um, the, uh, the underlying Hebrew there was an illusion when it says, and desire fails. The underlying Hebrew there was, um, um, it was, a, it was a, an allusion to a caperberry, um, which in that day was a known aphrodisiac. Um, and so your uh, days of uh, procreation and bearing children are, uh, have drawn to a close um, in this metaphor. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. There is an isolation that Koheleth sees as people age, as their friends die, as their world becomes smaller. Everyone goes to their eternal home. Everyone goes to the grave. In verse 6, there are four more metaphors that he trades in, right? The first one, the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken. So both are objects of significant value that are rendered useless through their destruction. Um, the third metaphor, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern. This is the uh, pitcher that would go down into the well to draw up water. The wheel would be um, the mechanism that you would use to pulley back up the, um, the pitcher from the well. In the ancient Near East, water was life. If you didn't have water, you didn't have life. And so you have a picture of objects of value being destroyed and of being no more value, of the ability to get and sustain water ceasing to be. In verse 7, we find an allusion to the early words of Genesis where God's good creation is, in effect, getting reversed. The dissolution of humanity, our teacher, um, it should be noted in this text, is not um, in any way optimistic about a life after death. He's not. He's simply observing that everything goes to its pre-creation state. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Everyone ages the body decays. Death is the end. I said earlier um, when I introduced this series that um, Ecclesiastes makes uh, explicit some of the commonness of life that we have together with our neighbors. Um, everyone ages. It's a, it's a universal thing. Um, whether through natural order or through illness, um, we find all these things to be the commonality that we have with our neighbors. So, so then, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point? 
Ecclesiastes, like the game show Jeopardy, can only get you so far. It can, it actually can't formulate for you an answer. It can only sigh a long sigh of questions with no resolution. Back in chapter 3, Koheleth brought us this passage. In chapter 3, verses 19 through, 19 through 21, listen to what he says. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to, this, to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? He is saying, who knows? It's like I said at the beginning of the series. When first learning grammar, you learn I before E. But then you learn the exceptions. Except after C or in sounding like A as in neighbor and way. Proverbs is still worth knowing. It is the standard of our life and wisdom. Ecclesiastes introduces then what happens when life doesn't work out that way, when wisdom plus God's love doesn't equal a good life. What do you do then? In what are the, wor- the final words of the teacher here in chapter 12? We see this same conclusion. Death finds us all. What's the meaning of it? Absurdity, answers the teacher. I don't know. I love what Peter Kreeft says here about Ecclesiastes 3 and 12. Here's his quote. He says, who knows indeed? Here under the sun, no one. Unless there should appear here under the sun a man who came from beyond the sun, beyond the horizon of death's night, unless we saw the rising sun. But Koheleth had not yet seen that man, only the man of dust from the earth, earthly, not the man from heaven. And what he says about the man of dust, the first Adam and all his descendants is simply true. As Pascal put it in the Pensees, the ending is dreary, however fine the rest of the play. They put a little dirt over your head, and that is the end forever. That is the end awaiting the world's most illustrious life. All we can see, all we can look at through the enlightenment of our own eyes is a world gradually growing dimmer and distant as we age. We will forget. We will grow weary. We will at some point no longer be able to summon the strength to live any longer. So what then is the hope of our lives, the point of our existence? Beloved, it is this, that God has taken notice of us. Though we age, he remains the same. Though we forget, he will not. Listen to the words of his son, Jesus, in John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. We can hear the gospel through the apostle Paul, who also saw life through the metaphor of a house, but listen to how Paul describes it. For we know that 
If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And what of our aging? Paul again says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Are you a deathist? Well, it's complicated. I believe that death has been conquered. It just hasn't been by us.